Good afternoon. Is that the right thing to say? Good evening. Good afternoon. It's my unique privilege to be here. I want you all to know you have a home in sunny Santa Monica. If you're ever there, check out Renew. Um, the rain here feels good. It does feel really good. And you guys make it look good. It's, you know. Um, but we're so happy to be here. One reason is, yes, my, my daughter got a puppy. Um, I'm a girl dad. I've got three girls. Uh, one's in college. My middle child is going to college. So our little one is very sad that she'd be home by herself. And so we got her a puppy. And what's so impressive about the Mitchell household is that it's so full of love. All the puppies, for sure. And then there's so many kids. Like, I've lost track of like, who's married to who and how many kids. And my wife and I were like, maybe if we sit at this couch long enough, they'll adopt us too. And so <laughs> just add a couple Asian people to your household. It'd be perfect. Um, but they are true spiritual mothers and fathers. Like, I don't know a better Christian couple than the pastors you have here. Um, and I've gotten to know some of their staff. And just, this is a, such a beautiful church in Vancouver. And I'm so happy to call you all family. So open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I've been tasked with holiness lived in this series. And I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Lord, be with me as I preach this word and be with your people as they hear it. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Holiness is a subject that intimidates me, mostly because I never liked the word growing up. And so there's two questions I want to ask of this passage that might help you as well. Number one is why be holy? And second, how? And I'll take the how in two parts. But the first question, why be holy? You might have heard of the TED Talk slash business guru, leadership guru, Simon Sinek, He's written a lot about the question why, and he finds that's the most compelling question people ask before even they get to the what. He says specifically, there are only two ways to influence human behavior. You can manipulate it, or you can inspire it, right? You can force people to do something over and over and over, or you can inspire people to do it on their own, and that's much more sustainable. Whether it's the workplace or in any kind of leadership environment, you want to provide the why. And I want that for holiness. Why be holy? Because the word holy, uh, growing up, I often associated holiness with stale bread, the the monk cell, right? Bear mat, flagellation. (laughs) Like, not good. And, And growing up in a rather fundamentalist church background, I don't know if any of you had that, there was a point where the pastor called us to be holy and we had to cash or turn in all our secular CDs and all our secular books and it was loss and devastation and deprivation. Those are the words I would often associate with holiness. So when it says in Hebrews 12, 14 to pursue holiness, 
The question I would ask is why, when it's felt so painful. But in our passage today, it says specifically that we are to be presented holy in his sight. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy. It's not just he wants you to be holy. It says specifically to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. As a student of the Bible, those words rang familiar. I flip back to Ephesians 5, and wouldn't you know it, the very same language. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself. Present as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Ephesians and Colossians are known as the twin epistles, written in the same time of imprisonment. Much of Ephesians is in Colossians and vice versa. So Paul had kind of one frame of mind as he wrote both letters to these two churches. And in both letters, there's this idea that holiness is a presentation of a bride to a groom. The context of holiness is a wedding where the bride is presented blameless, radiant, holy, and you find that fulfilled in the book of Revelations, chapter 19, verse 6 through 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, wearing what? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Our ultimate destiny is described as union. And the wardrobe of that union is holiness. And so holiness, rather than the context being deprivation, stale bread, monks sell broken CDs, is a wedding and an unending wedding supper. I don't know if any of you can remember, if you all are married, that wedding meal. I frankly don't remember what I ate, but it was the best meal of my life because I got to eat it with my new bride, surrounded by people we love and who love us, all celebrating love. And remember the dancing? Like, I don't dance, but I danced at that wedding. Part of my fundamentalist background was that I was told dancing mimics the writhing of hell as you're burned, so don't dance. I was like, oh my gosh. But at my wedding, I threw those shackles off and I danced <laughs> like I was liberated. It was ugly, but, but it was an act of beauty for me. Anyway, the wedding, the unending wedding. So holiness is contextualized as a presentation of a radiant bride to a groom where they get to enjoy a relationship and celebrate with an unending wedding feast. Rather than deprivation, we're talking about holiness as fullness, joy, dancing, feasting, connecting, because it's all about union. 
Paul, when he talks about marriage, says there's a mystery that peers through the marriage, which is our ultimate union with Christ. As much as a bride is wedded to the groom and there's union, so Jesus and the church. And Paul picks up that language, inserts it into Colossians to say that holiness is a presentation of the bride to the groom. The radiant holiness is the wardrobe of union. Let me back up. Why do we need that kind of wardrobe? Because holiness, the way I would put it, is like radioactive glory. Now follow me here. A little bit of theological wordplay, okay? Radioactive glory. What I mean by this is if you take a being and dial up all his attributes to infinite, infinite power, infinite love, infinite justice, infinite goodness, infinite everything, okay? What you have is a being that is so full of glory it becomes radioactive and it affects everything around him. Everything around him must be glory grade lest it be or he or she be destroyed. So the seraphim, who are the angels closest to him, they call them, they call them the fiery ones. The way they were able to survive that kind of furnace of glory was that they had to have six wings. Two to cover their upper body, two to cover their lower body. With two, they flew, and compulsively they cried, holy, holy. They could not contain themselves. All they could do was cover themselves and scream, holy, 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 over and over and over. And those were perfect beings, holy beings. God's glory was so intense, it was radioactive, and the effect of that radiation upon the earth is what holiness feels like. And very much like um, if you were to go to a nuclear reactor, it was covered in feet of concrete and, and steel so that people outside it don't get sick and die. And only people with special suits can get close because that radiation will kill you. There's so much power radiating out of that core. So it was in the temple. God had to be protected. Uh, we had to be protected from God. And he was quarantined in the Holy of Holies with a curtain several inches thick and no one could enter unless they die. Only one special person in very elaborate garb could go in once a year and everyone else had to look from a distance because his radiation was that, his glory was that intense. Anything in the temple would be radiated by holiness. So anything in the holy holies, oh my gosh, the Ark of the Covenant, you couldn't even touch it. If you do, you die. His glory affected material objects that if you touch it, you die. And then anything just outside the holy holies, you, you couldn't use the oil that was in the holy place lest you die or, or use the menorah and light it improperly lest you die. So anything physical near God was radiated by holiness. And that's just objects. So because God is so perfect, he exuded so much glory, in order to get close to him, you had to be of that grade or you get destroyed like a nuclear reactor. Why am I saying this? Because if God wants a wedding and he wants us to draw so close that we are one, we have to be holy as he is or we'd be destroyed. That's why scripture says, be holy as I'm holy. Because what God wants is union. 
But for union to happen, we have to be holy like he is. Holiness is an invitation to union. It's the wardrobe of union. It's the prerequisite of union because you can't get close to God unless you are holy or else you'd be destroyed. Does that make sense? So the second question, that's the why, union. But how? How can I be holy ultimately? Because I'm a sinner. I am not even close to the seraphim and they're having difficulty with six wings. How am I going to have union with a God who is radioactively glory and holiness? Well, our passage says this. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Oh, let me start earlier. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The truth is there's nothing we could do to make ourselves holy ultimately because we were enemies of God. The temple where God chose to dwell was on one hand an act of grace and mercy because he chose to dwell on earth, but on the other hand was an ever-present rebuke because God had to be quarantined. There was a time where God and man walked without any protection. In fact, Adam and Eve were naked, and they walked with God, and they were not destroyed. But we are so far gone. We are so far gone in our humanity with sin and wickedness that when God had to dwell, he had to be quarantined in a tiny room, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, called the Holy of Holies, and could only be accessed by a high priest once a year. God did not want that distance to remain. He wanted union. How does that take place? Well, he had to address everything that hinders our union, everything that blocks our union, everything that terrorizes our union. It's called sin. Sin is all that pulls us away from God. And that sin, Scripture says, warrants death. So Jesus, God's own son, came into our world, took all of that sin upon himself, and died the death we deserved. It says that his body was torn on the cross. And as his body was torn, it says in the book of Hebrews, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn. So that now, through Jesus, we are made holy. So we can access God the way Jesus himself does. Jesus prays in John 17, this amazing prayer. He says, Father, make them one, as we are one, I am them as you are in me. Now, if you break that part slowly, it is a ridiculous, ridiculous prayer. Because how is the Father in Jesus? Perfect. Jesus was the walking holy of holies. He needed no high priest. He was the high priest, the great high priest. He needed no mediator. He needed no permission. My daughter, Emily, is in my lap whenever she wants no matter what situation I'm in, I could be having a very serious, serious conversation with a very serious person, and here's Emily up in my armpit wanting a hug. Constant access, 24-7. Jesus had perfect access to the Father. So when Jesus is praying, the way you are in me, both of us are going to be in them. 
That's what Jesus wanted. Perfect and complete union. Where the Holy of Holies is no more a physical place where God has to separate himself from man, but within each of us, a living, walking temple. And for that to happen, we had to be made holy. Because remember, anything near God, if it's not of his level, his perfection gets destroyed. You can't get near God on your own. And so Jesus had to make us holy. And he does so by reconciling us to the Father, this passage says. Dealing with all your sin, all your shame. So that right now, if you put your faith in Jesus, I know this sounds weird, you are holier than the seraphim. You are holier than the Ark of the Covenant. You are holier than Aaron's staff. Because the angels were never promised inhabitation. And the objects were never inhabited, but we have the Holy Spirit in us, the living God in us. The triune God somehow finds us worthy enough to inhabit. And he cannot inhabit anything unholy. And so by virtue of you having the Holy Spirit, what that means is you are already holy and blameless. But did God see what I did last night or last weekend or last week? I know. And this is the good news, that even though we keep messing up, God chooses to see us as he sees his son because Jesus covers over you. Jesus covers over you. And I know in this life you stumble, in this life you're weak, in this life you make mistakes. But keep in mind, you add all the years together, it makes up less than an infinitesimal slice of your eternal future. If you're going to live a quadrillion years of glory with God, times a quadrillion years and whatever, that's nonsense, right? If you're going to be that long with God, your 80 years on earth is just a blink. So he who lives outside of time views you eternally. The vast majority of you, of who you are, is already glorified. He sees ahead of you. But yes, in this life, we have trouble. But he's already overcome. He's made you holy. By just simply virtue, by the virtue of your faith in Jesus, he's made you holy. Otherwise, you would not have the Holy Spirit. You would perish. You'd be destroyed. But Jesus has made you holy through his death and resurrection. But, my last point. How can I be holy practically? That's really where the rubber meets the road. You might go, well, okay, the gospel makes me holy. I'm reconciled to the Father. But what does that mean for my daily life? If you have the Holy Spirit inside you, you've got God inside you, it says in Romans 8 that the Spirit inside you cries, Abba, Father cries Abba. And that cry in the Greek is the same cry as when Jesus cried out from the cross. How do babies cry coming out the womb? Just like that. Just like that. And they don't stop till they're 18, at least. It's a guttural cry. Cry for intimacy. Thank you, Holy Spirit. That was perfect. On time. It's not just humans. You know, I walked, we walked into uh, Greg and Debbie's house, and the puppies cry. For affection and care and need. We have inside of us a spirit, a spirit of sonship, relationship, that instinctively cries, 
Abba. We long for union with God. If you are uh, a disciple of Jesus, you have inside you a spirit that craves to be close to God. And that spirit sensitized now to who God is. So if you keep in step with the spirit, it says in Galatians, if you walk by the spirit, that spirit, like a great GPS, will, will keep turning you left and right, left and right, until you are aimed at the heart of God. That's the spirit's job, to move you from a spiritual infant into Christ-likeness. And so if the spirit had his way and you were perfectly obedient, the Holy Spirit himself would lead you into a holy identity and life where you can begin to enjoy God as you would in glory right now. Full of life, full of power, full of freedom, full of love. That's available to you. But this life is hard. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, sinful desires wage war against our soul. Sinful desires wage war against our soul. For the sake of union, Jesus has given everything to make you holy. He gives you a spirit, puts that spirit inside you. That's like a spiritual GPS to the Father. But we've got treacherous ground that we walk on. Sinful desires that wage war against our soul. So it twists and perverts our cry. We cry, Abba. That's the deepest cry. But that cry will get twisted so that even though you seek identity in Abba, the sinful desires will point to the things of the earth. You seek satisfaction in the Abba, but sinful desires will convince you to find more tactile, tangible, quicker pleasures on earth. And so our sinful desires will constantly hijack our cries, cries that really are meant for the Abba. And make them sinful pleas to the things of earth. Hijacking our walk. And so that's why in Hebrews 12, verse 14, the author says, Make every effort to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Practically, for us to be able to listen to the Holy Spirit and move closer and closer to the Father relationally, it's going to take every effort because we have sinful desires that wage war against us. And the every effort, when you read what Jesus says and what Paul says, it's pretty rigorous. Jesus says to cut off an arm, gouge out an eye if it causes you to sin. Paul says, likewise, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It is aggressive, decisive language. You have a spirit in you that longs for the Father. And that spirit will guide you to the Father. You've got sinful desires, though, that wage war against that longing. And for you to succeed, you're going to have to put great effort into putting to death the misdeeds of the body, cutting away things that stumble you. And all that sounds very rigorous and tiring. It sounds like, it sounds like I have to destroy my CDs. <laughs> I've got to give up, you know, stuff. And I've got to flagellate and, and, and eat crusty bread. It gets back to my deep fear that holiness looks like a life of deprivation. But then I remember the why. The why. Why would I cut out things? Why would I stop things? Why would I withhold from myself things that my flesh cries out for? Union. And I think back to marriage. 
which is where I started from. The best day of my life is the day my wife and I stood at the altar and gave ourselves to each other. And from that day on, we had to work hard. Love, like the gospel, is opposed to earning, but not effort. Earning love, no good. Earning the gospel, no good. But effort, 100%. If you've all been married uh, or are married, you know that a good marriage takes a lot of work. I am not here to earn my wife's love, but I need to honor it and cherish it and make space for it to have the maximal experience I can have with Julie and vice versa. So to make space for that love, to make that relationship holy, I had to cut away some things. I had to cut away, you guys call it TSN, I think. That was painful. I had to cut away um, other attractions, other people I might be drawn to. And maybe that wasn't so hard in terms of like not calling people, but everything in my head had to be cut away as well. I had to cut away, um, well, in the States, it's called fantasy football. I don't know what you guys have here. It's like, oh, Dion, life's not worth living. But I, it was just taking up too much time. Like my weekend was just constant anxiety about the team and people I had to draft. It was insane. I had to cut away um, my insistence on eating only red meat and learn how to eat sushi, <laughs> which was a faithful journey, a very faithful journey. <laughs> and it's just a small list of things that I had to cut off and gouge and put to death, so to speak, and my wife has her own list. And the question is, why? If someone gave me a list of things I would have to do for someone else and it involved all those things, I'd say, yeah, I'm going to pass. But when I met my wife and gave my life to her, I knew that that love was worth everything. And in cutting some of those things away, I didn't lose, I gained. Because if the whole point is simply to cut and then make myself feel good about everything I'm cutting away, that's called legalism, right? And that's futile because as I'm pulling away sinful habits, I'm just pouring in pride. I'm proud of the fact I gave up TSN. But then who cares? In, in the end, what do I gain? I'll go right back to it. But if I cut those things away for the sake of union, for the sake of love, I'm not going to miss it. Because being connected to my wife is far better. Trust me. You can watch eight hours of TSN, and if you're in an argument with your wife, you're like, you know, I'm so stupid. I should have just connected with my wife. Right? Connection with someone you love is so much better. And that's why, that's why I pursue holiness. I make every effort because the goal of it all is union. Union. He calls you to holiness not because he wants to curse you or condemn you or deprive you of pleasure, because he, but he dares to see you as himself, holy, that he might be at one with you. He might love you. He might be wedded to you, Jesus, to the church. And to, be, to have that kind of union, we must be like him. And to be like him, Jesus gave his life to achieve that. And now we have the privilege of working that out on earth. 
Daily obedience. How do you live out practical holiness? The same way you live out a good marriage. You put your eyes on the one you love, and you keep a soft heart, and you say a lot of I'm sorry's. Daily repentance. The Holy Spirit will convict you. The Holy Spirit will make you hurt when you do something stupid. The Holy Spirit will tell you, oh, that's not a good move. And you go to your knees, say, God, I'm sorry. Don't let this get in the way of my relationship with you. Help me get overcome this. And the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to overcome it. And what you get in, in place of it as you go through all that is a deeper and deeper intimacy that makes it worth it. Holy people are happy people. Holy people love Jesus and enjoy Jesus. And they find the church beautiful. And they're, they have great and deep relationships. They sing and the words mean something. They believe in God's word and the promises their life comes alive. Holy people are happy people because they're full of union. If you can bow your heads. I'm going to just read the words of this old Christian song over us and maybe just allow the Holy Spirit to speak. Holy Spirit, take control. Take my body, mind, and soul. Put a finger on anything that doesn't please you, anything that grieves you. Holy Spirit, take control. Jesus, you gave up so much that we might draw near, that we might be a holy and radiant church to you. You've given up so much, you gave your own life, that the curtain might be torn, we can come all the way in. Holy Spirit, we invite you to put a finger on anything that tempts us to stitch that curtain back up, anything that tempts us to back away create distance that doesn't need to be there. You have done everything possible for our union with you. Holy Spirit, put a finger on anything that grieves you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.